Good morning again. It's really a privilege to be with you and to serve you with the word of the Lord this morning. I do pray that as we look at his word that Jesus Christ will be exalted uh, among us and that you will behold and see his glory afresh or for the first time this morning. There is no pit where God's love is not deeper still. That was Corey Ten Boom who saved many Jews during the Holocaust by hiding them in her basement. She was a Christian and she was eventually herself sent to a concentration camp. She survived and after years she would come face to face with the very prison guard who had killed her sister. He himself had become a Christian and she was suddenly thrust into a moment when she had to wrestle with how deep the forgiveness of God and Christ actually goes. The English pastor and Puritan Richard Sibbs once said, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Do you believe that? Is God really that good? I think if there's one account in all of Scripture that would put that to the test, it's this text that we've just read. In John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. When Peter famously, infamously denied his master and his friend, Jesus. Here's the main point I want you to take away from this text. Jesus' faithfulness is the only hope for your unfaithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness is the only hope for your unfaithfulness. And as a bonus... He delights to make unfaithful people faithful. He delights to make unfaithful people faithful. Let's begin by seeing faithfulness and unfaithfulness. That's the first point. Faithfulness and unfaithfulness. When we come to this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has been arrested. He is bound up. He's been taken to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And it's at this moment in this chapter that instead of taking us along with Jesus, John takes us on a detour from what's happening to Jesus to what's happening around Jesus. We learn in verses 15 and 16 that while Jesus alone was arrested, he was not alone in going where they took him that night. John tells us, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, instead of just telling us that Peter and this disciple entered into the courtyard, John tells us twice, verses 15 and 16, that this other disciple that followed Jesus was known to the high priest. So, this disciple had access. He had connections. He had wasta in some way. He entered with Jesus 
into the courtyard of the high priest while Peter stood outside of the door. So how did Peter get in? By this disciple going out and speaking to the servant girl. It's widely held that this nameless disciple is John, the author of the Gospel. The reason that we have such a detailed account of this story is because John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. And one of the ways this should encourage you as a Christian and certainly as you talk about the Christian faith with a Muslim friend is that the Gospels demonstrate themselves to be very credible. The amount of detail that's just included right here about Peter and how he got into that courtyard in order to tell us something that's not flattering at all about Peter is incredible. It's an eyewitness account. Now, why does John go to such lengths to give you such great detail of what is happening? Why does he do this? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in His name. So he works to show you the credibility of this account, not to satisfy your curiosity, but ultimately to satisfy your soul in Jesus. For all of us, we should be certain that faith in Jesus is not the leap from reason. It's the most reasonable place we can put our faith. Peter followed Jesus, but he could only go so far until John went out to speak to the servant girl and brought Peter in. And the servant girl who let him in also asked Peter a question. Verse 17, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? That must have felt so sudden to Peter. He was just following John into the courtyard. And then suddenly, he was faced with a decision. Keeping this safe distance from Jesus suddenly came to Peter to be very close. What would he do? In that moment, whatever he feared was so great that it led him to say, I am not. And with those words, he denied Jesus. In that moment, he was unfaithful to his master, to his dear friend. Only moments earlier before this passage, the soldiers had approached Jesus and said that they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus came forth and He said, I am He. But Peter, when he was asked, are you one of His disciples, said, I am not. It's two I am statements. It represents two very different people. Two very different trajectories that night. It was a split second decision. And Peter calculated the cost of saying, I am. And he decided that the cost wasn't worth it. And with that, Peter begins a slow descent that only hours before he could have never fathomed. 
And it's surprising. If you know this account, you know that only hours before, just before this passage, Peter had boldly stepped forward and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. He had shown what he thought was great courage for Jesus. Moments earlier, Peter was ready for a fight. But now, fear has so overtaken him that he can't bring himself to tell a servant girl that he's one of his disciples. Friends, just as a a note, the, the antidote to the fear of man is a greater knowledge of and love for Jesus. That he becomes bigger and man becomes smaller. What happened to Peter that night? I think that his own expectations of Jesus had been shattered. He was very ready to kill and to fight for Jesus. He was not ready to suffer and to die. Here's Jesus bound and arrested. He's weak. He's helpless. This is not what Peter expected. This was not the terms that Peter had bargained for. This was not the kind of Messiah. This was not the salvation that Peter wanted. On whose terms are you following Jesus? When Jesus upended Peter's expectations, when Peter saw Jesus not as the conquering king, but as this helpless, suffering servant, Peter denied that he was his disciple. Peter wasn't prepared to follow Jesus on those terms. What are your terms for following Jesus? What do you say in your your own life? I'll follow Jesus under those conditions, but not those. Can Jesus upend your expectations? Could it be that the trial or the circumstance of your life right now is rather than being evidence of his absence or his weakness is exactly what he's purposely doing in order to show you more of his glory and his goodness. You will find freedom when you let him, like he's doing with Peter, destroy all of your wrong notions of who he is based on your terms and come to know him based on his. Learn from Peter that there are moments coming in your life in which what you're doing right now will determine whether you will be faithful then. Are there relationships that you have in place right now in your life where someone knows the truth about you, can speak the truth to you, Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus as He is or as you want Him to be? Friends, Jesus isn't manageable. Jesus is Lord. And it's as we come to Him on His terms that we walk in the path of salvation and sanctification. 
His own disciples that night should have been the ones who most understood. Who were encouraging Him. Who were praying for Him as He was suffering. But Peter and the disciples were not prepared. Because at least at this point, Peter only wanted to follow Jesus if the Christ fit his expectations. I wonder if there's ways the risen Jesus needs to upend and change your expectations of him this morning. On that night, verse 18, inside that courtyard there were servants who made a charcoal fire because it was obviously cold. John tells us they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was standing and warming himself with them. I wonder what it felt like for Peter as he stood there warming himself around that fire with those officers. Warm by the fire, but fully aware of what and who it was he had denied. If you deny Him, you can stay hidden among the world, but you will never be able to hide from your own soul. What was Peter's conscience doing to him in those moments? Settle it in your mind that following Him is worth it, even when you have no idea where following Him will lead you. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, in following Him, wherever that is, He will meet you. He will be there with you. Better to be there in that trial, in that place with Jesus, than outside with the world hidden away. Around that fire, Peter had taken a small step toward unfaithfulness when suddenly John switches the scene. Verse 19, John takes us there from Peter with the officers around the fire to Jesus with the high priest under fire. He's being questioned about his teaching and his disciples. That's what they're asking him about. His disciples and his teaching. This was a theological interrogation. It's the high priest and Jesus. So one of his disciples has just denied him. Jesus doesn't deny any of his disciples. He doesn't deny any of his teaching. And Jesus is emphasizing here that he's done nothing in secret. He has spoken openly to the world and the synagogue. And the temple. And why is he emphasizing this? Because he wants to be clear, he's not secretly planning some conspiracy. He didn't teach anything in private, that he wasn't teaching in public. The other reality that John is highlighting is verse 21. If the religious authorities had cared about justice, they would have brought in witnesses. Jesus insists they ask those who had heard Him because they know what He had said. 
And for simply asking this, in response, one of the officers, verse 22, struck him. Slapped him in the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? We have here an unjust trial. The proper procedure at the time was to call witnesses. It was to question witnesses. The world that so hates Jesus treated Jesus unjustly. It's good for you and me to see every wrong that Jesus faithfully endured as He went to the cross. All things, John tells us at the beginning of this Gospel, made through Him and for Him. The Word who has become flesh is willingly subjecting Himself to this. This is who Jesus is as a nameless official slapped Him in the face. Is this how you answer the high priest? Oh, the irony. We've just witnessed in this Gospel only a few chapters before, earlier in the day that Jesus intercedes for His people with the Father as His people's true high priest. And He's willingly placing Himself under these men who make a mockery of what the high priesthood is. There wasn't one petty insult that Jesus wasn't willing to submit Himself to for us and our salvation. He did not take personal vengeance. He was not concerned for personal honor or rights. He willingly endured that act of personal arrogance. He did not personally retaliate. Not when Judas betrayed Him before His face in the garden. Not when this petty, small man whose name we do not know slapped Him. His righteousness, it's His innocence that are on clear display And it's their wickedness and it's their guilt that is on display for anyone who would see His faithfulness in the midst of so much unfaithfulness. But it would be wrong for us to assume that He he didn't respond at all. He did testify that He spoke openly. He challenged the religious authorities. Verse 23, what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What is John showing us? That Jesus did nothing illegal. That Jesus subjected Himself to an unfair trial. No witnesses. He was a man on public trial and He has nothing to hide. And we're meant to ask, who's telling the truth in this trial? Who's acting righteously? Who is wicked? Why did these wicked religious leaders want Jesus gone? Yes, He did threaten their power. But He threatened something much deeper than that. He threatened their pursuit of salvation 
on their own terms. He threatened their desire for a God they could control and manipulate and manage. And Jesus will not be managed. Jesus has the right to say no when the whole world says yes. The irony of this is clear. Jesus is the innocent one being condemned and unjustly treated by those who are guilty. He's not concerned for his own personal vengeance. He is concerned to demonstrate his innocence. What's Jesus doing? He's making proper use of the right channel, the appropriate system legally, to do away with unfair, wrongful charges. So he's acting in such personal humility that his personal integrity cannot be questioned, and his legal innocence is clear. So for the sake of salvation, he seeks no personal vengeance, And for the sake of salvation, he's proving to the world his public innocence. As we read this, we're reminded that the pursuit of justice in this world is right and good. But it is not our ultimate hope. There is justice that is coming. Jesus did nothing unjust in pursuing a just salvation. So your justification, your right standing with God is on just terms. And it should give you confidence. What isn't made right now will be made right then. Jesus seeks fairness in this trial, but he's not hoping in his ultimate vindication from a human court. My assumption is some of you have known injustice in this world. I want you to see your Savior is not indifferent to such injustice and unfairness. Should you make use of the legal system as a remedy? Yes. But know that as in can in a fallen world, if that fails, that Jesus sees Your Savior knows He will deal justly with injustices. Trust and entrust yourself to Jesus. He subjected Himself to terrible injustice. He endured them for your salvation. He's with you as you endure them as one of His own. Here's Jesus faithful in the midst of a trial that was anything but just. He faithfully defended himself. He hid nothing. And he was sent away, bound by Annas to Caiaphas. When John interrupts us again. Verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. It is such a contrast. The Savior facing unjust Wickedness, Peter standing in comfort by the fire. Jesus' faithfulness, his own disciples' unfaithfulness. Peter's slow descent has begun and it wasn't stopping. I imagine at this point Peter is trying to forget, 
the small little lie that he had told when suddenly he's interrupted. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? I am not. And again, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. I cannot imagine what it was like for Peter when he heard that rooster crow. Just hours before, we read at the end of John 13 that Peter said he would lay his life down for Jesus. And Jesus told him directly, the rooster would not crow until Peter, you have denied me three times. And so John means for you to see the authority, the certainty of Jesus' word, even as Jesus stands condemned by the religious human authorities. Jesus is embodying human weakness and suffering even as those closest to Him are unfaithful to Him, it's Jesus' Word that is being fulfilled. It's this strange mix of authority and suffering. Visible weakness and yet total control. So what is John doing? He's contrasting for us Jesus and Peter. Jesus has nothing to hide. He's openly declaring who He is. He's making clear He's done nothing in secret. Peter's in hiding. He's doing everything he can to keep the truth about himself a secret. Jesus denies nothing. Peter denies everything. Jesus is condemned by the religious authorities. Peter is blending in with them. Jesus really came for real sinners who commit real sin. We don't need a cleaned up gospel. You don't need to try to make yourself better than you are. Peter must have been shocked by his sin that night. Shocked by what he had just personally done to Jesus. Now at that moment, Peter did not realize there would be another side to all of this. For all he knew, that was it. His final moments with his dear friend Jesus, spent at a distance, ashamed, having come to a point he never thought possible, filled with guilt, total despair. Whatever it is that would tempt you to walk away from Jesus, to deny Him, whether it's with your speech or with that sin in your life, it's not worth it. Jesus really is better. Faithfulness and unfaithfulness. But there's obviously more that we can be sure of. I want you to not leave this account without also seeing what Jesus' faithfulness means for you. Second point, what Jesus' faithfulness means 
for you. Have you ever been shocked by your sin? If you're like me, the temptation in that moment is to say, that's not who I really am. That was just a a moment of weakness. But we can't separate what we do from who we are. It's in those instances, those moments, if by grace you will not suppress it and see it, you will see how clearly good Jesus is. You will see how good the gospel is, how deep it goes. Don't try to sanitize, clean up your sin. I mean, of all people in the world, Christians, we are the ones who have admitted we are bankrupt morally. We should be the most free to be honest about the sins that we struggle with. One of the reasons Peter's sin is there for the world to see is that we might really see the kind of sin and the kind of sinners Jesus has come for. Serious, personal sin. He denied he knew the Son of God. Jesus is the only Savior who means for you to see the sin that shocks you. That you might see how deep His grace actually goes. So for you who are Christians, you who know the gospel, you have believed in Christ crucified and raised, quit trying to convince yourself that that sin is not who you really are. It is who you really are. And who you really are is who Jesus came for. On the other side of that, quit believing that that sin is unforgivable. That kind of thinking makes much of your sin and very little of Jesus. Jesus came for shocking sin. For sinners with sin and patterns of sin who sin in ways that surprise themselves. Bring that sin to Jesus. Don't try to cover it up. As one person said, He loves to do it properly. Now if you're not a Christian... I hope you're seeing how good the gospel is. I hope you're seeing how near Jesus comes to sin and sinners. I know this church, so I can tell you that they don't gather, we don't gather as Christians every week because we need some inspiration. Because we need some tips for life. We're here because we know we need salvation. And if you think about your own life, you know you need salvation too. Don't push the guilt down. Don't try to brush it away. Don't don't try to compare yourself to that person and think that you're a little better than them. We're guilty. We're totally guilty before the God who is. The God who is holy and righteous. And there's freedom that you can't imagine from having the grace to actually see your guilt before God and then repenting and believing in Jesus who will forgive you. He's going through this entire trial to substitute Himself on the cross for sinners. And His death and His resurrection on the cross are proof that He's qualified to forgive you. 
and that he stands ready to forgive you. But we know that we don't have merit in ourselves. But what we do know is there is eternal merit in Jesus. He doesn't demand that you work for him. He simply calls you to repent and believe. Come to him. Trust him. His faithfulness means righteousness for you by faith in your unfaithfulness. For now, Peter has denied Jesus. The rooster has crowed. But this is not the end for Peter. I think that Peter who could not believe what he saw in himself that night would be shocked if he could look ahead and see by the grace and the power of Jesus who he would become. Decades later, this apostle who couldn't fathom a salvation by suffering and weakness, who himself would never forget that he had cut a man's ear off on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, that he had denied Jesus in the flesh, he would be changed by Jesus. He would write to a scattered, beleaguered, suffering church a letter that you and I know as 1 Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he would end that letter, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. To read that is to see how deep the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ goes. To read that is to see how much Jesus can change a man. Peter, who decades before wanted glory apart from suffering, decades later deeply understands the pattern. In Jesus, suffering before glory. Oh, imagine if Peter that night could have seen himself decades later as the man who the risen Jesus would make him to be. There really is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Peter knew this. And so must you. He doesn't just delight to forgive your sins. He delights to change you such that by His power you become what you never would have become on your own. If we were all to leave the service today and go to an art gallery and look around, we wouldn't start praising the masterpieces of art. We would praise the artist, the one who painted them. So with Peter. So with us. One day, when we're no longer looking through a glass darkly, we're going to see with clarity all that the Lord has done to make each of His blood-bought children who we are. We won't praise each other. We'll praise the One who very personally did the work in each one of us to change us from what we were to what we will be. Friends, we know that the story of Peter's unfaithfulness in the midst of Jesus' faithfulness is not strange. Because if we know Jesus, we know this is our story as well. Trust Him.
as you suffer for Him. That on the other side is glory. To Peter's surprise, Jesus met Peter in that deep pit of unfaithfulness that he had sucked so far down to that night. His grace was sufficient for Peter and His grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise You for Jesus Christ, friend of sinners, faithful to unfaithful people like us. We pray this week that we would follow You faithfully by grace and that You would continue the good work You've begun in us until we see our Savior face to face. In Jesus' name, Amen.